You never get a second chance to make a first impression. And the same is true for your book. You have a very small window of opportunity to hook your reader's attention and convince them that they want to continue reading your book. Statistically speaking, only 50 to 60% of readers finish the books they started. So you have a 50-50 chance of a reader finishing your book. And that's a lot of unfinished books. And what's important for us as authors is that readers rarely recommend a book they don't finish. All of our marketing is about getting people to read the book so that they then recommend the book. And that word of mouth virtuous cycle spins and spins and the force fire of word of mouth spreads. And that won't happen. People don't finish your book. So if you want word of mouth to kick in, if you want people to finish your book, you need to make the kind of first impression that hooks the reader to the end of the book. So you have perhaps one or two pages to hook their attention enough in the bookstore to buy the book. But that's not enough. You need to then hook them so that they're committed to finishing the book. And you have maybe, maybe 50 pages to do that. If you haven't captured their attention by page 50, typically you've lost them. They may not realize it. Right? There's probably many books in your house that you're telling yourself you'll finish when in reality you're not going to finish those books. Why? Because the authors failed to capture your commitment within the first 50 pages. It's not your fault. It's not a moral failing that you're not reading those books. It's those authors' fault for not holding your attention. So how can you write your book so that people need to finish it? They need to know what's going to happen. They're committed to the conclusion of the book. So how do you do that? We'll find out in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Sumstadt Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a living writing books worth talking about. We have a special guest on the show today who knows how to make a powerful first impression with the first 50 pages of her books. She's a friend of the show, a Christie Award winner, the author of over 150 books, and she has millions of copies sold. Angela Hunt, welcome to Novel Marketing. Oh, thank you so much. By the way, it's 165 books now. I sat down and did a recount the other day. Every time I interview you, we have to update your bio because you've <laughs> written a dozen books since the last time. <laughs> uh, we do have an episode about productivity. If you're like, how does she write so many books? We'll have a link to it. Just click on our name under the friends of the show at novelmarketing.com and you can learn her secrets for productivity. But that's not what we're talking about today. Today, we're going to talk about the first 50 pages. And I feel like a big element of, at least in a novel, grabbing somebody in those first 50 pages is getting the reader to care about the characters. I have to care about them enough to want to know what happens next. So how do you craft a character that readers care about, and how do you do that quickly? You have to create a bond between the reader and the character. And the best way to do that is to give the character these certain things. Number one, make the character vulnerable in some way. So let's do a hypothetical story here. And let's say it's going to be a kidnapping story where someone is the protagonist you could have the little girl be the protagonist. You could have her father be the protagonist. You could have a detective be the protagonist. But whoever it is, I have to thoroughly get in their head and bond with them. 
So if it's the detective, you can make him vulnerable by maybe he has a new partner or maybe he didn't defend his last partner and his partner's laid up in the hospital. So he's not feeling his usual confidence. And if it's the little girl, you can make her an outcast at school. Maybe she's one of those brainy, nerdy kids that is an outcast and is not really accepted, but she's really smart. And so anybody who's ever been slighted by their friends at school will identify with her. The next thing you do is you need to make your character admirable in some way, because we love people that we can admire. So give them a noble nature or physical or moral strength convictions make them virtuous or spiritual, give them a special talent or ability. There's something they can do that nobody else can do as well. And you can make this gift surprising. Yeah, competence is so appealing in a character, especially for me. I get very irritated by an incompetent character. And you have to use those other tools you're mentioning a lot to make me Mm -hmm. like an incompetent character. (laughs) I like to read stories about people who know what they're doing and are skilled. And think about it, right? If you're at work, right, you've got Mm -hmm. all your teammates and there's that one guy who is just terrible at his job, right? And everybody doesn't like that guy, right? Because it's like you're pulling the whole team down and people don't want to read a book about that guy unless he's got a really nice personality. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this person needs to be admirable, And even anti-heroes, like take Don Corleone in The Godfather. He was a criminal. He had people murdered, but he had an ethic. They did not sell drugs because that hurt children. So even somebody that's incompetent, you can give them a corresponding, even overpowering virtue that makes us admirable. And another thing is you need to give your character a flaw. I mean, even Superman has kryptonite that he can't handle. So even the greatest, most admirable character needs to have some weakness that can be exploited or there's not really going to be a story because the bad guy has to find that weakness and exploit it. It also is helpful if you give your character a sense of humor, especially if it's self-deprecating because you've created this great guy or woman who's very smart and clever and very skilled at what they do, but you don't want them to become proud as a result. So you give them a self-deprecating humor, or maybe they laugh at that one flaw that they have or that weakness that they have. And then one other thing that I always think is important to do in that first 50 pages is think about your own life a time when you were grieving or sad or tired or disappointed. And then you write down all the emotions that you felt during that time and transfer those onto your protagonist. Because if you felt it, your reader has felt it too. And so that creates a character that's going to be very realistic and human. And then you don't just do it to your protagonist, you do it to the major supporting characters and the antagonist or villain, if your story has one as well. But all these other characters need to have their own goals and reasons for being in the story. They're not just there to play off of your protagonist. And and I would say that what you're talking about goals is really key. Because the stronger their desire, the more they want something. That desire really moves the plot forward and it makes them really likable. 
somebody who's just sitting home letting the world happen to them, a victim of you, the author, is very unappealing. And mm-hmm. I will say probably for me as a reader, this is the most common of the mistakes that I see where, you know, they've made the character tolerably likable and the other things that you're talking about, but they're not taking enough action. They're not moving the plot forward. They're too much of a victim. And it's like, I don't want to feel like a victim this whole story. It doesn't mean that, that bad things can't happen to them, but I want to see them protagging. I want to see them moving the plot forward and not just being drugged along by all of these random events that are happening around them. Right. But remember that your inciting incident, the main thing that happens that turns the story engine and transfers your character from his ordinary world to the special world, is probably going to happen after the first 50 pages. So your character may just be sort of existing, especially if it's a child or somebody who's just working in a nine to five job until that thing happens. And then but a boom that's when they establish a goal and really become proactive rather than reactive so the first 50 pages still has to be interesting and you have to start with action okay let's create a kidnap story and a lot of beginning writers have heard start with action and so they would start with this little girl standing on the quarter and a black van pulls up and they grab the girl and throw her in the van and it speeds away. Well, that's a horrible beginning because we don't know the little girl. We don't care about her. We read the newspaper and there are kids, missing kids all over the United States. And so we've grown hard to that. So the trick is in that first 50 pages, you've got to make your reader bond with this little girl, come to love this little girl so that when the inciting incident happens, we really care and we can't stop reading. We have to figure out what happens to her once she's gone. It's about growing that emotional connection with the character so that suddenly we are invested. And when the girl's taken in the van, it feels like it's a family member being taken in the van. And now we need to know what's happening. And this is one advantage of writing series, because the longer you spend with the series, the more invested you are with the character. Yeah, because at our core, humans are basically self-centered. We hear of a death, and if it doesn't affect us personally, we say, oh, that's terrible. And then 10 minutes later, we're back to our ordinary routine. But when it's someone whose absence is going to affect the way we move and live, then we feel it and we really grieve. So that's your goal in the first 50 pages is to make that protagonist matter that much to your reader, is to really establish that bond. So as you're approaching your first 50 pages, that's a lot of real estate to work with, right? That's three to 12 chapters, maybe more. So walk us through how you're approaching what to do first, what to do second, right? What should we do in the first 10 pages to set up for the next 10 pages? Okay, the first line is the most important sentence in the entire book. Notice that I did not say the author's note, the epigraph or dedication, or a forward slash prologue. A lot of readers flip right over those things, which is one reason why I say avoid prologues unless absolutely necessary. And whatever you do, whatever you do, do not think, oh, gee, my beginning's a little slow. 
So I'm going to grab an exciting scene from the end of the book and stick it up front as a prologue and then put two weeks earlier at the head of chapter one. No, (laughs) no, 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 no. I know they do that on TV all the time, but don't do it. Your challenge is to come up with an exciting beginning. Today's reader is a different creature than the readers from the 40s and the 50s. We have so many distractions. If we pick up a book and we're going to commit hours to reading it, we have to be grabbed from the get-go. So I've come up with some principles, and you're going to see these broken, but you're going to see them broken more often in older books because today's writers are wising up to the fact that today's readers want to explode off the starting line. So don't open your novel with scenery. Don't make your first line describe rooms or furniture or even people. Don't open your novel with a weather report. (laughs) You mean I can't say it was a dark and stormy night? (laughs) Oh, please. Only Snoopy gets to say that. So the best first line I ever read, and nobody's beaten it yet, was from a Jody Pico novel. And it was this, Ross Wakeman succeeded the first time he tried to kill himself, but not the second or the third. (laughs) Isn't that marvelous? And look at it. No weather, no description, no scenery. There are two things, though, that I think are integral. Number one, a person. We are humans, we are social, we like other people, we like to read about other people, we like to eavesdrop on the lives of other people. So put a person in that first sentence and then say something that raises a question in the reader's mind. And in this one, it's, if he succeeded the first time he tried to kill himself, then obviously somebody brought him back to life. I'd like to know about that. And I'd like to know about how he tried the second time, how he tried the third time. Why did he try a second time and a third time? See all the questions that evoked in my mind? It's curiosity. What makes this a good line is that it just floods you with curiosity. Absolutely. Because it's what you expect, but different. And those differences are like, wait, what? How? If he succeeded the first time, how could he succeed the next time? And now I've got to get that resolved. Now I've got to read more of the book. That's right. You have to do something that jerks the reader into a question. You don't want to explain everything. A lot of beginning writers feel this compelling nerve to reason, I've got to explain who Ross is. I've got to explain why he tried to kill himself. No, your goal is not to explain anything. Your goal is to keep the reader hooked. So, I asked some writer friends of mine, send me some of their first lines to use in this little lesson I'm writing. So one friend sent this one. My gymnastics career ended with an injury, and I wasn't even the one who got hurt. And I love that because we have a person, the first person narrator, whoever it is, and I want to know what in the world she did to hurt somebody else. So that's interesting. And then here's the last one. Cemeteries always smelled of earthworms and damp dog fur, especially after a rain, and Brudge rather liked it that way. I thought, (laughs) oh my goodness, that is so beautifully creepy. And even though I don't know who Brudge is, or even if it's a he or a she, I'm hooked. 
Who is this person? Why does he like the smell of cemeteries? What happened in his past? People aren't born thinking, oh, goody, I want to go smell a cemetery today. So there, make sure your first line has a person, and it should probably be the protagonist that we're going to bond with, and something that raises a provocative question. Something that all of these first lines have in common and, and pretty much all really good first lines is that they shock Broca, which is a technique we have a whole episode about. So the Broca region of the brain is the part of your brain that filters signal from noise. So when you're sitting at a restaurant, it's the part that's filtering out all of the noise of all the other people having a conversation. But as soon as you hear a word spoken in anger, somebody starts raising their voice, suddenly your attention shifts and you're like, uh-oh, am I in danger? It's like, oh, they spilled coffee on their lap. It's no problem. And then you're back to the conversation. And that Broca region of the brain is a big obstacle most of the time as an author and as a marketer getting the word out because it's filtering you out as noise. And so you have to make it unexpected. You have to make it different because if it's what people are expecting, especially the first sentence, because I may go to a bookstore and read a dozen first sentences. And so it's got to be different than what I'm expecting or set up some sort of something unexpected to get that broca region of the brain to be like, ooh, this is signal. This isn't noise. Your first line leads to the second line, which leads to the third line. And so let's move now from the first line to the first scene. You have to show the character dealing with a problem. Now, you've heard, start your book with action, start your novel with action, and that's true, but it should not be the main story event. The Wizard of Oz, the tornado doesn't come until 20% of the way into the story. In The Sound of Music, Maria does go to the Von Tropp family, but not until after twenty, the first 20% of the story. In Die Hard, Bruce Willis does discover there are terrorists in the building, but not until after the first 20% of the story. But they all have interesting challenges, right? Maria is, is rushing to get back to the convent, and maybe she's going to get kicked out of the convent. And there's basically a whole arc of story in Die Hard. And Bruce Willis's character is trying to save his marriage and trying to reconnect with his wife. And there's this whole arc of how to do that and entering this very strange world of corporate America when he's a, a beat cop. And I think that's really good because it, the challenge gives you an opportunity to show rather than tell the most important character traits of your main character. Right? How do they handle the challenge, right? Do they go over? Do they go under? Do they go through? Do they talk their way around it, right? Or are they a fighter or a lover, right? You learn a lot about somebody by how they handle the struggles that they're facing. And you learn a lot about what they want, deeply what they want. Exactly. All right, Maria, you hear her say the words, I want to be a nun, but you see her do the actions of I want to sing, <laughs> right? Yes, and she wants to break the grand silence, and she is fun, and she wants to skip in the hills, and she wants to be a nun. She wants to love and serve God, but she's not fitting into the convent. Yeah, <laughs> that's it exactly. How do you handle a problem like Maria, right? So in making that opening sequence interesting yes. without giving away the core part of the story. I feel like this is one of the big things that separates successful authors from authors who are just getting started. Because when you're first getting started, 
uh, this is, I think, a hard skill to learn because, in essence, you're kind of writing a short story. So that first arc has got to stand on its own. It's really got to stand on its own because if I'm bored by how do you handle a problem like Maria, I never get an opportunity to find out about the Nazis. I never get an opportunity to meet Von Trapp and the children and all the rest of it. I've tuned off to the next thing. So how do you navigate that? Right. Well, the whole point of that first 20% of the book, and really the first 50 pages, that's what I'm talking about, no matter how many actual pages it is. It's all this first introductory part where your purpose is to reveal character by creating this obvious story problem. Also, as you're creating the obvious story problem, you are subtly pointing out the character's hidden need. So let's talk about Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy is on her way home, remember, with Toto, and Miss Gulch comes over and says the dog was eating her flowers and she's got to go. Dorothy protests. Uncle Henry and Auntie M by the way, who she does not call mom and dad. So clearly, there is a problem there that's never directly addressed, never explained. But they say, no, Dorothy, she's going to have to go. Takes the dog, drives away. But Toto jumps out and comes back to Dorothy. Dorothy's so upset, she runs away from home. Remember, she meets the traveling guy. And uh, he looks in his crystal ball and pretends to see a sobbing older woman. And she goes, oh, it's ADM. And he says, go home. All right. So she goes back. And that's when the tornado comes. What did we learn? We learned that Dorothy loves her aunt and uncle. We learned that for some reason, her parents aren't around. We learned that she's kind. She loves Toto. We learned that she's not happy on the farm because she's out with the pig pen singing somewhere over the rainbow. Get me out of here. She's not happy living there. We learn all these things about her without ever having to have her sit down and explain, well, my mom and dad died and that's why I'm here. She never explains. She never, we never go back in story time. It's always forward motion. And then the tornado comes and the real story begins when she goes to Oz. So this is what you need to be doing in your first 50 50 pages is showing your character dealing with an obvious problem and make it interesting. But you're going to be revealing characters, showcasing the major players in this character's life. And that's really the challenge of the first 50 pages. Now, a lot of people listening write speculative fiction. They have spent years of their life, maybe their entire life, creating a fictional world. That has continents and peoples and history. And the temptation is, I've got to explain my world Mm -hmm. in these first 50 pages so that people can understand what's going on in the story. And that is a mistake. (laughs) Brandon Sanderson has this iceberg metaphor where he's like, you do all of this world building to keep the world consistent. And you only share with the reader the very top bit of the iceberg. The world building is important, but this isn't the time to dump info on the reader. But it is fantasy, and the setting does help sell the story, right? Fantasy readers read fantasy because of the fantasy setting. And so how do you introduce the fantastic elements of your story? You do exactly what Angela was talking about, right? You basically have that little story, and you introduce only what you need to, For the purpose of that first arc, because part of the curiosity that will pull a fantasy or a sci-fi reader through the story isn't just what's going to happen to the character that I now care about, but also 
I want to learn more about the world. I want to spend more time in this world, right? You just enough to whet their appetite. An opening sequence done really well in sci-fi is Leviathan Wakes. It's the first sequence in the Expanse series, which is a very popular series. It was made into an Amazon series. And the protagonist is on an ice freighter that's carrying ice across the solar system. And so just the setting lets you know, okay, this isn't some faraway fictional place. This is Earth, near future. They're dealing with real problems. And then they get a distress call from another ship. And there's a fight over whether or not they stop hauling the ice. And that you learn very quickly about the physics of space travel and how stopping a spaceship from moving is a real challenge, right? So this is not Star Wars where you just push the button and the ship stops, right? It's like, no, it's, it may take us days to slow down to help out this ship. And then they go to rescue the ship. But this is a contained story with a whole arc of like, do we help them out? And then he breaks the rules and disobeys the orders of the captain to help out the ship anyway. So now you're learning about the protagonist, that he's a rebel, that he's guided by his conscience. But he's also kind of a bad boy and his punishment is he's sent to the ship. And it's, it's a contained story in a sense. And it does a really good job of setting early stakes before the call to adventure, right? If you're writing sci-fi or fantasy, I encourage you to read at least the opening 50 pages of Leviathan Wakes and see how the world building and the character development are intermingled. Yes. The beginning of your novel, the first chapter, or the first few chapters, actually, they establish a contract with your reader. And in it, you reveal your protagonist, who should be the first person introduced in your story. Now, there are stories that introduce a secondary character first. In fact, most mysteries, especially murder mysteries, they open with a dead body. It's somebody we don't know. And then that might be in a prologue. And then chapter one is going to begin with the detective going about his daily grind at the office, taking flack from his partner and that kind of thing. But then he gets introduced to these series of murders or whatever. So make sure that if you try to have somebody else appear first, and then you we meet your protagonist in chapter two, that's going to jar your reader. And we try not to jar our readers if we can help it. Another thing that we spell out in the contract subtly is the genre. Something else that you established in these first 50 pages is the tense and the point of view you're going to be using. Are you going to write in third person, omniscient, first person? Or are you going to write in present tense or past tense? You're going to set it in these pages and then try to be consistent. You're also going to acquaint the reader with your writer's voice. And people always say, well, I don't know what my voice is. How do I develop it? Yes, you do. Your voice is what comes out of your fingertips onto the computer. That's right. And I I would define voice as how you write when you're not afraid. And learning to find your voice is, in many ways, learning how to write with courage. The courage to say what you mean and to write how you talk. (laughs) And voice often is knowing when to break the rules and what kinds of rules you break. Yes, exactly. Another thing that we establish in this contract with the reader at the beginning is the story world. Is it historical? Are you writing in contemporary times? Are you writing in future? Are you writing in the country, in New York City, in Europe, in a fantasy world or whatever? So you show it. You don't tell it or explain it. You just show it. And if it raises questions in the reader's mind, that's fine. That's good. 
But there's a difference between raising a question in the reader's mind and confusing the reader. The reader is confused if they put the book down because things aren't making sense. And then another thing that you can put in this first 50 pages is a hint of the ending. I learned a long time ago that one really effective way to end is to go back and echo the beginning or set it in the same place or time or reference to a song or something. And so it works both ways. If you include a hint in the beginning, the reader is going to subconsciously pick up on that. I say this over and over and over, no backstory in the first 50 pages. But something happened to him as a child and it just fits in here so nicely. No, I'm a big believer in write your first draft, don't stop, don't edit, just get it down. But then once you get it down, when it's time to do the second draft, go through and look for little places where you've put in what I call recollections, which is like just a paragraph or two of his mind drifted back to the summer that he'd first fallen in love, blah, 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 blah. Highlight those in yellow and then cut them and put them in a separate file and call them cut backstory because I know how painful it is to delete it. Don't delete it. You might need it, (laughs) but I doubt it. But anyway, cut all the backstory and you're going to discover that your story is moving forward faster and it's more energetic. Then after you get past the first 50 pages, after you get past the goal and your character is really struggling in this new story world, maybe at the three-quarter point of the novel, then go look at your cut backstory file and look for what was the one event in his life that was the most transformative? What changed him the most in his past? And I would put a full flashback scene and write that scene as if it were happening now and put that in like right before he goes off to face his biggest challenge, before his bleakest moment, right before the big climax of the story. And it's going to have so much more emotional punch if you place it there than if you had dropped a dozen little factual explanations or hints in that first 50 pages. There, the readers would just skim over it. You have to earn the right to share the backstory. Because in many ways, you're putting the story on hold Mm -hmm. to go back and tell the backstory. And you haven't earned the right to do that yet in the first 50 pages. You're still convincing someone that your book is worth their precious time because they're going to live the rest of their life and die and never get back the time they spent reading your book, right? You have to convince them that it's worth dying just a little bit to hear your story. (laughs) Any kind of pause, any kind of suspension of the tension and the curiosity, which is often what backstory ends up being, you haven't earned that yet. And it doesn't mean that you never share it, but I completely agree that you don't want to do that too early. And the same with world building, right? The real big explanations, the like going to the mentor who can answer the questions of how magic works, right? You don't do that in the first 50 pages. You don't start learning how the magic works until much later into the story after I'm already invested in the characters and what they want and what they're going to get. Yes. But you might be saying, Okay, but but there's this information I really need to get across. Well, then do it in present story time through dialogue, for instance. Like in my story about the little girl that was kidnapped, 
she gets taken to school. She gets out at the corner. She greets her friend and her friend says, hi. She says, hi. And then she says, is that the nanny? And the, the little girl says, yeah. And she's still being crabby. Yeah. And then she says, how many nannies have you had now? Four in three years. And then the girl says, oh, bummer. And then she pulls up a little bag of fruit snacks out of her backpack and says, here, because I know you don't ever get good snacks. And so, see, just by doing that, I've painted a picture of this little girl who's had a succession of nannies because obviously something happened to her mother. So this little girl is grieving the loss of her mother. And so if you've got to get that information across, if it's important to your story, put it in dialogue in present story time, just through the people that your character meets. And this is a challenge because there's a pitfall here because you can fall into the, as you know, Bob, we've been brothers our whole lives. (laughs) So dialogue alone isn't enough. It has to be natural dialogue. It has to be the sort of thing somebody would say. And this often takes a little bit of reworking and you have to look at what does this character know? What do they want to know? And what would they say and create a more natural back and forth? So it may be, as you know, Bob, in the first draft, that's okay, but don't leave it that way. <laughs> you got to work it in more organically. And that takes a little bit of revision. It takes a little bit of effort because that's a real easy temptation is to just have characters telling each other things they already know. So speaking of mistakes, what are some other mistakes that you see authors make in those 50 pages that cause readers to nope out of the story? Not having a clearly defined protagonist. I was at a writer's conference once and this woman said, I'm writing a story about this little girl who's kidnapped. And I said, okay, so it, is she the protagonist? Is it the little girl and how she escapes? She said, oh, no, there's a policeman. I said, oh, okay, so it's a police story. And he's the protagonist. And he's trying to rescue this little girl. And she said, oh, no, there's a lawyer. And I said, oh, so he's <laughs> the one that's <laughs> going to come to trial after the little girl is rescued. And she said, oh, no, there's the girlfriend, the love interest. And I thought, okay. Let's back up. You need to pick your protagonist. Whose story is this? Is it the girls, the cops, the lawyers, or the woman's? A lot of that depends on who your ideal reader is. If I'm writing primarily women's fiction for women, I would go with the woman. If it is to be a police procedural, I would go with the cop. If it's going to be have a legal flair, I would go with the lawyer. And what's interesting is that we're not changing the story here, right? You can still have all of those characters in the story. Sure. It's just a matter of who is the protagonist, who's the primary character, and whose experiences are interpreting the story. And so this is why knowing your Timothy, which I'll link to an episode about who is my Timothy in the show notes, really affects the writing and how the marketing for the book needs to be baked into the book, right? You need to be thinking about your reader from the very beginning. Marketing is not like sugar that you sprinkle on the cookie at the end. You have to bake sugar into the cookie if you want people to enjoy the cookie. And so you need to think about whose experience is most resonant for the reader and then you pick them first. And you'll have other characters and you may have other point of view characters and that's fine. But yes, you've got to know who your protagonist is and your protagonist must appeal to your Timothy. If you don't get that right, it's you can't really fix it by doing well in the other areas. Because if I don't care about your protagonist, I'm not going to stick around for 50 pages. I'm not going to finish your book and I'm not going to recommend it to friends. So you got to do that well. And if you're needing more help 
on your first 50 pages, Angela, where should people go if they're like, I still want more help? What should they do? In this little booklet I'm writing on the first 50 pages, I refer a lot to other writing lessons I've done. And they're all very short. I think the shortest one is 28 pages on plotting, because I think people would rather be writing than sitting around reading about writing. But I just break things down into, this is how you do it, nuts and bolts, and give them some examples. We will have a link to that Writing Lessons from the Front book on the first 50 pages in the show notes for this episode that you can find at authormedia.com slash 373. Angela Hunt, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, Thomas. Don't forget, June is Patron Appreciation Month. I have a free gift for everyone who becomes a patron in the month of June 2023. It is a free copy of my course, Publishing A to Z. This course is normally $300, and it walks you through the pros and cons of traditional publishing, the pros and cons of indie publishing. It walks you through the process to publish your book independently. It shows you how to get a literary agent if you want to go traditional. So what's unique about this course is that it teaches both indie publishing if you want to publish the book yourself. It teaches traditional publishing if you want to go that route. And if you're undecided, you'll really know which way you want to go because you'll know how to do both. It also walks you through how to get a title, how to get a cover. It's very robust. I really like this course and it is my free gift to all patrons, both current patrons and new patrons in the month of June 2023. If you want to become a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast, just go to novelmarketing.com slash patron. Speaking of patrons, our featured patron is Michelle Levine, author of Dancing on My Grave, Book and Mug Mysteries, number two. Becca Sheridan is confused. Conrad wants to get serious, but then kicks her square dancing club out of their meeting place and gets involved with Simone, Becca's rival since middle school. Her questions multiply when Becca finds a dead body in a nearby creek. With the help of friends from the book and mug coffee shop, she puts together clues to arrive at an answer that shocks them all. Michelle, thank you so much for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. We could not do this without you. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. Our guest today was Angela Hunt. Our producer is Lori Christine. Audio engineering by William Umstadt. And the blog post is crafted by Shauna Lettler. To read the blog post version of this episode, go to authormedia.com slash 373. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.